Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, a true story about what makes a man with Thomas Page McBee and his Bailey Gifford Prize shortlisted book, Amateur. Thomas Page McBee was masculinity expert for Vice and the first trans man ever to box at Madison Square Garden. His essays and reportage have appeared in the New York Times, Playboy, Glamour and Salon. He's the author of one previous book, Man Alive, and now Amateur, a true story about what makes a man, which we're going to be talking about today, and which is also shortlisted for this year's Bailey Gifford Prize. Thomas, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks so much for having me. I want to get us into why boxing, but to do that, the book really kicks off with there's an incident in New York on Orchard Street with a guy. What happens? Yeah, so I was, uh, it was the summer of 2015, and I had been having this experience, it was a few years into my transition, but I was generally having this experience of sort of two main differences in my life since I transitioned, and one was the experience of privilege, like I was suddenly... I don't know, having this very lubricated experience of life is the only way I can think of to put it. Suddenly people take you seriously. Suddenly everyone was taking me seriously. Suddenly I was not being interrupted at work. I was suddenly interrupting other people by accident just by talking. So I was aware of those privileges and also like walking alone at night on the street, that sort of thing, being a vehicle of fear for women who were walking alone at night. So all of the privilege stuff. But then there was also all the kind of constriction things that were happening for me around what men are supposed to behave like. You know, I felt a lot of awareness around not wanting to feel like not, you know, sort of being policed around being vulnerable or having feelings or um, not sort of showing my power in every interaction. So that was happening for the first few years after I transitioned in 2011. And in 2014, my mom passed away. And so in 2015, I spent this summer in grief. And I was, I think, to be fair, like pretty angry because of the like constriction. And I just wasn't sure how to have my grief in a way that, you know, that could translate my whole experience. So for the three months in a row, June, July and August, I kept having these incidences like with men in the street where I would have these run ins and they would they would almost turn into altercations. And it was like maybe I was mad, but certainly the other person would start stuff, and I didn't know why. And this last time, I was going out to get ice cream at the bodega near my um, house for my girlfriend and I, and I walked by this restaurant that had just opened up, and I tried to take a picture of it, and like flash went off, and a light bounced back, and this guy just came tearing out of nowhere and uh, thought I was taking a picture of his car. And he, he didn't really, I don't think. I think he just wanted to have a fight. That was the point of why he was there. And 
But what was different about this experience was that I think I was just tired and frustrated and I'd had enough and I didn't know why this kept happening. And it was like the crucible of like every moment like this that had been happening for years. And it went on and on. And I, and I felt myself almost come to blows with this guy. And in the end, I didn't. But to me, that felt like this turning point of, you know, if I don't change something, I'm going to end up like this man. And I, I had been very familiar with the masculinity crisis and I'd been reporting on it and thinking about it. And so to me, it felt like there's something about the male experience that I'm experiencing and that I'm witnessing that I haven't seen written about or thought like talked about before. And that's that's what happened on Orchard Street that day. Like, and I guess the key thing here is testosterone, which is, I mean, it's something that's overplayed in mm-hmm. terms of its importance in masculinity, as you do talk about. But you've, you know, you've been basically injecting testosterone for mm-hmm. a period of time at this period. Mm-hmm. And so those, one of the... I mean, side effect is probably the wrong word mm-hmm. because it's 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 one of the sort of causes of it. But those irrational mm-hmm. getting angry with people randomly in the street. I mean, that was obviously happening as well. This is, you know, this is like a sort of, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess. Yeah. But at the same time, how did that sort of, how were you dealing with that? Well, I mean, I think in the end, what I found out was it had nothing to do with testosterone. Actually, it had a lot to do with what I later learned is, you know, the man box and the way in which we socialize boys and how early on we teach boys and men, you know, who then become men, that the only way to sort of navigate the world is through dominating people. Mm-hmm. And the only way to have a feeling is to be angry. So in the end, all of this kind of made a lot more sense to me. But at the time, I was navigating it badly. I didn't know. I think I felt you know, like I would be in my house, in my apartment, and I would feel great in my body, in my skin, in my life. I'd made this big transition. It was really scary. I like lost people. You know, I I didn't know what would happen next. And so I think going through all of that was really a journey of, of itself. And I think people think about the stories of trans people and they think that's where it ends. But to me, like what's interesting and what I think as 1% of the population, what we have to actually bring to everyone else is like the story of what it is like to experience gender as an adult and socialization as an adult and how much more that's about that's a universal experience that I think speaks to culture that we just don't you know when we're children we can't we can't without our frontal lobes uh, make sense of what's happening to us and I think I just felt I feel uncomfortable when I'm leaving the house the way that I'm expected to behave in the world and I really want to have had this experience of going through this transition be worth it to me because I'm still I want to still be myself on the other side of it. And so for me that's what it was like. It was like I was uncomfortable a lot of the time and I wanted to find a way to back to myself. And so what you find is boxing, which I guess is <laughs> I mean it's a, a sort of epitome of a of a, a certain idea of masculinity, I guess. Why boxing? Because of what happened that day on Orchard Street, you know, I think when I came to that crossroads, what became clear to me is that, you know, in masculinity, I think the number one rule is that you don't talk about masculinity and it's like Fight Club. And then the second rule is you don't talk about masculinity. And I think that this guy coming tearing after me in this like moment that we had together felt to me like, you know, when you are kind of in a moment of surrender and you don't know the answer, that's what it felt like. I was like, I don't understand why this has happened and I don't know what I don't know what to do. So I just had a question, which is why do men fight? And it felt to me like maybe the way out and the way to start changing my own relationship to myself is to start answering these questions that feel, you know, stupid or like the things you're not supposed to ask or even things that put my masculinity quote at risk by asking them. So that's why boxing, because I was like, why do men fight? I'm just going to have an open heart and an open mind and ask the question. And I happened to know a guy who was on the board of a charity outfit that did boxing matches. And I asked him, you know, can I learn how to box and get on this fight card and, and do this whole thing so I can try to make sense of this question? And that led to a lot of other questions, which led to the book. 
So tell us about that world. So, I mean, I must admit, I'm... I wouldn't say I'm the world's biggest fan of boxing. <laughs> yes. One of the um, one of the issues I have with it is that whole sort of idea that it. I mean, I guess all professional sports does this to a greater or lesser extent. It just seems more extreme in boxing that the actual practitioners mm-hmm. of this game are obviously, you know, come from often extremely underprivileged backgrounds. Yeah. Um, the people that run the game have all the money and the power. Yes. And what you're talking about here is this obviously laudable idea of, you know, fighting for charity. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you go in and training in these sort of like downtown gyms. Mm-hmm. And there's all of these guys that are like, you know, bond traders mm-hmm. and whatever that are coming along and doing it. Yeah. What's that world like? How do all those people rub up against each other? Well, that's part of what interested me in the story. I mean, it started as a story. I was I pitched it as a story to Quartz where mm. I was a senior editor at the time. And I was really interested in like what's going on here with these Wall Street guys who are like have no need to risk their bodies. And clearly it connects to masculinity mm-hmm. on, a, on the same level. But I wanted to understand them. I wanted to understand, you know, the trainers who were training them, the sort of economy of the situation, which was frankly pretty awkward, but also weirdly intimate and sort of equalizing in ways I wasn't expecting. Because the truth is the guys who had the least, quote, power, you know, in terms of the out- external world had the most power in the gym, you know, the, the trainers and the coaches were the ones who mm-hmm. had all the knowledge. And I think that there were a lot of uncomfortable truths that seemed very in play, like constantly, but also it was very interesting to watch rich, generally white men have to constantly sort of humble themselves in really vulnerable ways in a context where I think that most of them, you know, maybe haven't ever done that. Boxing was full of surprises and the sort of class and racial stuff was like among those surprises because the people in control in the gyms were definitely not the people who were in control outside of the gyms, which was interesting. Although, of course, financially, the people who were in control were still the people who are always in control financially. <laughs> but it does seem what comes out of this this story is that, you know, in the, the sort of crucible of, the, you know, the locker room of the boxing mm. gym that versions of masculinity are allowed to reveal themselves that perhaps wouldn't ordinarily if these guys were just hanging out in a bar or something. Yeah, of course. You know, I later learned what sociologists call the cover of violence Mm -hmm. allows for men who are no longer worrying about their masculinity being fragile, which is like sort of the hallmark of toxic masculinity is that it's a it's a thing that you have to defend, which mm-hmm. is in and of itself strange. It's like a pyramid scheme. Like, why do we have to defend something that we are? But okay, so, but when you're at the boxing gym, you don't have to defend your masculinity. It's already proven. So everyone's sort of coming from a place where there's no policing, for the most part, uh, very little policing of masculinity, which was really interesting to me. I had never seen that. And that allowed also for a lot more intimacy. So, for example, in sparring, which I, you know, would never have known this, but that's such a key part of training, a lot of my time spent like working with other guys in the gym was like basically us doing this very intimate physical act of trying to to fight without actually hurting each other and then spotting each other's weaknesses, helping each other get better, helping turn those weaknesses into strength. And at no point were people like making fun of each other for those things or, you know, undermining each other because what would be the point? The point is to literally help each other get better. And it was physically like very affectionate space, like which was something I noticed since I transitioned that people touched me a lot less. And it was very odd, honestly, to suddenly be in a place with all men pretty much where there was so much physical affection. And so I think what that taught me really was that underneath fragile masculinity, underneath the ways we train boys to feel about their bodies and you know their place in the world there's always the capacity for all of the things that have been lost maybe in that process like empathy and like support and like intimacy and i found that at a boxing gym which was a real surprise so tell me something about your own journey to be a boxer so tell me something about the training how it all sort of panned out it was 
really a crazy idea in retrospect to do what I did. Like, I think I was in the throes of grief, so I made decisions that you make in those sorts of places. Like, I, uh, I'm saying that because I started so late. I had five months to train for a for a boxing match with no boxing experience, and I was like in decent shape. Like, I worked out, but I wasn't like a sports like level training shape, you know. So I wasn't ready for that. And no, I was surprised <laughs> by that that length of time because I, yeah. I mean, six months seems a relatively long period of time to be fighting for something. Which I mean, without you know, what it suggests, it wasn't a proper boxing match. Christ, it was. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, between you know, two amateurs that are fighting for charity yeah and yet absolutely six months is considered to be nowhere near enough time no because it really i mean most people have been training for a year at least and i think it's like boxing is a sport based on endurance so your body Mm. has to be actually really even though we didn't even do a full 12 rounds which i can't even physically imagine yeah (laughs) but even three rounds it's like I don't know how to explain what it's like. Maybe like swimming in an ocean or something. Like some level, the level of strain on the body is so mm-hmm. extreme. And it's like, I didn't have enough time to be physically prepared on a cardio level, really. Like that was step one. Step two was I didn't actually know how to box. So like learning an entire language, an entire sport. And the final thing is like, I didn't know what kind of, like my own, like what was my style? Like wh- what was my weaknesses? What was I. Uh, what kind of spiritual things did I need to work through in order to like, you know, I mean, it's not a team sport. So you can't rely on other people to kind of, you know, pick up the slack where you don't have a strength. You have Mm -hmm. to actually just be so exposed in everything that you are. And I think that that is why you need more time because it takes a long time to learn all those things about yourself and to learn the sport and to be physically capable of doing the sport. So yeah, it was challenging. But I think that also it's kind of my style to do exactly this. So like in a way it was like kind of right for me like to be thrown into the deep end and have to just figure it out and be like, well, who knows, a fight's coming, so I got to do it and I'm writing this article and I, you know, I I just kind of had to make it work and, you know, it did. <laughs> so and that just to good. reiterate, this is you're fighting at Madison Square Garden. This is yeah. not just a charity <laughs> fight that's taking place in the back room of a bar or something. You know, no. this is a big deal. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to talk necessarily about what happens. We'll you know save that for people to read in the book. But what do you think you learned about yourself? Like you mentioned a few things that were surprising about that world. But yeah. what did you think you learned about yourself? I learned a lot of things, but I think what surprised me most that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, I am not a violent person. I'm not someone who's interested in, you know, inflicting violence on others. So this was a bit of a challenge, (laughs) you know, um, sort of constitutionally. But I think I'm a person who's survived a few different traumatic events and life experiences. And I'm also from, you know, I'm trans. I'm from a marginalized identity. And I think the idea that certain people learn how to fight and certain people don't is something that really has stuck with me ever since. And I think a lot about, you know, not that I think fighting is an answer to a problem, but I think the fact that I know how to protect myself and I know how to fight both physically and actually like sort of spiritually and mentally that I understand the idea of how to fight for something. I think there's something very empowering in that. And I think that I didn't expect to feel that way. But the fact that there is a structural system around who gets to be the person who fights really bothers me. And I think the more I talk to people about it, the more I like really have felt encouraging towards women who want to learn to box, like towards people of color, towards anyone from a marginalized background. I mean, anyone really, but like, especially if you're from a background where where you were sort of taught that you are not allowed to do this. I think it's so important to in whatever way that's this works for you, like to learn how to to have this sort of skill set and mentality because because we're animals and fight is one of our responses to threat. And I think that's important, you know? So I, I guess what surprised me was feeling that way. And what surprised me is that 
I've certainly never used these skills since, but just how much it matters to me that I know that I'm capable of it. I think that was not something I expected to feel happy about, but I I do. (laughs) (laughs) Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Thomas Page McBee. We're talking about his book, Amateur, a true story about what makes a man. And Thomas, as you just reiterated before we broke, and as I mentioned at the beginning, you were the first trans man to fight at Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. But in talking about the boxing match in the first half, we didn't really mention that too much. And indeed, in the book, you don't talk to many people in that boxing fraternity Mm -hmm. about that. And I wanted to talk about why now there are a few things perhaps first of all and again you don't really go into too much detail in the, about this in the book because i guess it's a bit it's a bit dull but were there like logistical reasons yeah i mean the main reasons were safety oriented i didn't mm. know what to expect and i didn't want to put myself at risk you know on that level the other main reason was around like you know actually for the sake of the story i, I felt worried that if i put that out there it would change I didn't want to be, you know, it's like the observer effect. I wasn't sure mm. how that might affect the way people interact with, with me, and I didn't want to have to think about it later and wonder, you know. So I have passing privilege. People don't know I'm trans unless I tell them, so I really wanted to sort of, like, be in this world and not make a point of it. There is, like, a kind of boring logistical thing in the sense that, like, you know, there was uh, regulation issues that I think would have been fine, but around, like, the people who regulated the event that around – trans athletes and like what we have to prove to prove that we can fight etc and it's not that that wasn't I don't even know how that was resolved honestly I know obviously my the charity knew I was trans and I kind of was like you know if you need paperwork whatever but it was a pretty awkward thing and I didn't really feel comfortable with the situation and never really heard much about it afterwards so I guess who knows if the fight happened yes exactly we (laughs) we did it who knows if the regulating body understood what was happening but you know it didn't really matter so um but yeah the main issues were around my feelings of 
safety and mostly the mediating, not wanting me being trans to be sort of like what I led with and therefore potentially created an atmosphere around me that, that changed the way people behaved. And I mentioned that you were a masculinity expert for Vice. <laughs> um, I don't know how serious that title is, but it's I want to know yeah. what, what particular um, insight you brought to that. I mean, I wrote for them a, a few stories about masculinity, and that sort of became a, a joke, really. I don't know if I'm an expert. I mean, maybe now, maybe I think at this point I've synthesized, like, I think, you know, through a lot of conversations, actually across a lot of different academic fields, it's been interesting to talk to sociologists and historians and neuroscientists and developmental psychologists and have them all sort of say the same kinds of things in the end, you know, around around masculinity, around, I mean, there is pretty much a theory of at least toxic masculinity, which is, to be very clear, not masculinity. It's a series of socialized behaviors that boys learn that are not innate and have nothing to do with biology and are just encultured, but have huge ramifications for us all, you know, both like interpersonally and politically and literally environmentally, because men are much less likely to recycle. Um, So I guess I've come not to a theory of everything, but certainly have been pretty much directed routinely to the same resources and ideas about how men become, you know, socialized in a certain kind of toxicity but i think yeah there's there's definitely a, a thing there with you not being socialized as a man until adulthood yeah means that you know suddenly you are able to analyze that you can process that as you yeah. said when you're a child it's just what it's just what is exactly whereas when suddenly you can go oh christ suddenly i'm behaving like right. i'm talking over women yes as you said you know those sort of things you know, how surprising was it that when you did start to sort of develop those sort of behaviors? Yeah, it was surprising. But like, I think it was surprising at first before I started the book. I think in a way it was almost relieving to just be in the situation of really examining that stuff and, and starting to find solutions and answers to sort of bring myself back in line with what I thought was right. You know, I don't think most people walk around trying to be in power struggles or dominate people. Or I don't think most human beings who are relatively good think that they, you know, walk into the world every day wanting to exert power over other people. I don't think so. But I think that when that's how you learn to behave, you don't see it. And I think even as someone who is being super conscious of it after my transition, I felt like the way my environment was affecting me was um, so tremendous. It was almost like being a, you know, an undertow or something, you know, And, and I really didn't know how to stop it. And I think finally facing that and actually sort of admitting that I didn't know and being able to start asking and asking for help, which is actually the opposite of toxic masculinity, <laughs> you know, and saying I don't know things like it really changed my life. And I think that process, even putting aside gender is something I've learned now that I can bring to anything, you know, like admitting I don't know things is the beginning of, you know, a much more better journey than sort of calcifying in my, <laughs> in my short, like shortness of whatever it is I'm talking about. So yeah, I mean, I, I really, I really think that so much of the way we socialize boys and then therefore expect men to behave from the place in which boys are socialized is limiting for men. And I think that's the thing that gets lost often in these conversations about why men should change or the world's moving ahead or, yeah, certainly for the sake of other people, but for ourselves, like we're missing out on so much of life because we think we have to behave a certain way. You mentioned a while ago the idea of passing privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, like passing that very concept is poisonous. The mm-hmm. idea that you know, back in the back in the day, you know, light skinned black mm-hmm. people would pass as white, mm-hmm. and I mean, I guess for you know most of your life, you were passing as a woman. Mm-hmm. That idea of privilege, you know, like as you said, you know, you clearly trans people 
are a spectrum mm-hmm. of you know abilities to to pass as their you know as the, as their real gender. Yeah. Tell me something about that that sort of experience that you've had. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like I guess I don't even want to say I'm lucky, but the way testosterone affected my body was very fast and very mm-hmm. immediate and very complete. And so I I was almost like sort of startling to go very quickly from you know, being sort of an androgynous person in the world to being, you know, someone who no one would ever doubt. I'd outbet a man my whole life, you know, and that's its own its own thing. I think the burden of that, reckoning with the burden of that and the benefits of that obviously became a big subject in my life for a long time. But I also think passing is interesting concept because when you, we take it out of the realms of class and race and those things, like, and start thinking about just on a human level, like something that I think maybe became a comfort to me was realizing that everybody passes, like mm. everybody's walking around, not advertising their history, mm-hmm. you know, and their every experience. They'll pretend to be something. Yeah. Or at least we're being 50% ourselves or mm-hmm. 25% or, or sometimes maybe making a strategic decision not to reveal something at a certain time because it's socially not what we want to do. And as much as possible, I think in general with the trans experience, like there's so much of it that has been sensationalized and been sort of captured the imagination of people who I think actually need to think about their own gender a lot more than mine, you know? And I think <laughs> my... Captured the imagination seems <laughs> yeah. a very, very polite way of describing <laughs> Well, culture. yeah, certainly. But I mean... I guess even in the positive sense, like I think when I, I'm always interested in why people are so fascinated with trans people and all I can think of is people are fascinated with gender, but there is so many ways we are limited by this culture in terms of looking at ourselves. So it becomes like for better and usually for worse, a way to project all of our anxieties and feelings, you know, on other people, you know, is to look at trans people and say, you can't do that. Or like, it must be like this for you or whatever it is people think. And really, I think my experience, well, first of all, trans people have always existed. So, I mean, it's not a new thing. But second of all, like so much of my experience is pretty, even things like passing, you know, not to in any way undermine, you know, the reality again, that some people don't have this experience and and some trans people maybe really want to pass can't and that sucks. And, you know, I think that that's a real dangerous thing sometimes for people. But I'm speaking of like sort of the metaphorical passing and how we all do that. And so, so many things that seem interesting really, I think are like not nearly as interesting as, I don't know, as they might seem on the surface <laughs> when you really think about it on a human level. <laughs> um, you talk in the book about the beginning to date mm-hmm. after your transition. And I want to talk about that, particularly in the context of you mentioned, you know, before, you know, you were you know, androgynous and mm-hmm. you describe yourself or certainly uh, certainly previous partners have described you as basically like a guy, but better. Uh-huh. But then you take that step yeah. of the transition to become a guy. Yeah. But it's not necessarily better. <laughs> no, definitely not better. No, I think like realizing how freighted, how freighted it is. You know, I, I date, I, well, I'm married now, but I, you know, I, I'm attracted to women. And so like being in an opposite sex relationship is really intense, like because of all of the politics of gender that, you know, I felt like I sort of walked into, you know, even though my partners always knew I was, you know, trans and, you know, I had a queer background, et cetera. But it was a really big change in my life. I think in so many ways, queer people get to shake off the sort of gendered baggage. I mean, not always, but my experience was that I didn't have to like worry about gender so much in my relationships. And that was actually very liberating and um, highly recommended. Uh, (laughs) And I think working through, you know, the responsibility of being a man in relationship to women was, was really challenging because I often didn't understand sort of what that baggage was because I, I hadn't had the life experience to understand even what was going on, you know, in my dating life in that way. 
I want to finish us off talking about the idea of the crisis in masculinity that you know we're, we're perhaps in now. And I was struck reading the book that in a lot of contexts, and indeed you do mention this, um, that this is a story of American masculinity. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the UK, we have, we have a lot of the same issues. Also, you talk in this book about a psychologist, a sociologist who is uh, who is dating a Danish man mm-hmm. who displays an entirely different standard of masculinity mm-hmm. than, you know, these, these what I think of as like quite American cultural mm-hmm. aspects. I mean, is there anything in that? Well, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert in British masculinity, though I have actually recently for an article spoken to someone who said that uh, a sociologist who told me who's British, that a lot of the American ideas are actually pretty applicable mm. to British culture. No, I too. think that's true. Uh, though maybe maybe to different degrees or maybe to slightly different there's other things at play, but that idea of the man box and like there's a way men are supposed to behave and learning it early and you know, in America I know literally we begin gendering babies in infancy, like um, mothers talk more to their girl infants and their boy infants, for example. So like that gendering process is really, um, I think, pretty Western and pretty consistent, though it is true that in Nordic countries, particularly in Denmark, from what I know, like, you know, this is all, there's not like a longitudinal, you know, big study about this. But the researcher that you're talking about, she did a, a great study where she asked Danish men what the opposite of a man was, and they said a boy. And then she asked American men the same question, and they said a woman. And to me, that sort of sums up like, you know, a very alternative way of thinking about adulthood and what it means to become an adult. And Danish women actually say the same thing. The opposite of a woman is a girl. So just sort of, you know, the way in which American masculinity is so defined by not being a woman. And that's also proven out with um, the NYU psychologist Niobe Way, who studies adolescent boys and friendships and how those friendships are basically identical in terms of like the way they describe boys describe their best friends exactly like girls do, like flowery language, loving language, until about adolescence. And she's been studying them for decades. And then every cohort changes around adolescence and just suddenly becomes all of these emblematic, like toxic masculine behaviors. And they distance themselves from their friends and, you know, lose all of what she calls the things that make them human, you know, their empathy, their ability to have intimacy. So I don't know if, you know, I'm not a global scholar of masculinity. I think it's different in different places. But I think certainly these... um, restrictive ideas about what being a man means certainly are uh, more endemic in America. Uh, certainly there are other models in other places, but I don't know if any place has it totally sorted out. <laughs> no, in, indeed. But I raised that, I mean, not to get the UK off the hook, but because there's a connection in the book which I'd never made mm. myself, which obviously, you know, it took about the idea of American masculinity and I'd link that to, you know, ideas of the American dream and the mm-hmm. perniciousness of that and money and class but specifically in the book, you link it also masculinity to white supremacy. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's, you know, that's interesting because when I was talking about writing this book with people like at, before I started it, like that was something that came up a lot from my friends of color. Like, you know, if you're going to write about masculinity, maybe you should really make sure you're thinking about what kind of masculinity you're writing about, which was a great point. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that a lot as I was writing. And then when I was reading Nell Irvin Painter's History of White People, she wasn't describing white men necessarily explicitly in her book, but she literally was writing about white men. And she's a, a black scholar from Princeton who, who wrote this great, it's a history of white people in America, basically. But there is no way to look at the way in which we enculture boys and when we think about masculinity without thinking about racial identity too. And so much of what – when we see white, white supremacy, not that women can't be part of that, but it's clearly a movement led by white men 
who feel that their status has been threatened and who are literally displaying fragile masculinity, which comes from a toxic idea that masculinity is something that has to be guarded and protected and not something that's just innate to you because you're a man. So all of these things are, you know, clearly interconnected and we're seeing as part of the global masculinity crisis, the effects of that. So I've been talking to Thomas Page McBee. We've been talking about his book, Amateur, A True Story About What Makes a Man, which is out in the UK from Cannon Gate. Thomas, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thanks so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.